When the first pilgrims arrived at Plymouth Rock in 1620, they found the indigenous people consuming the small tubers of a viney plant with beautiful red flowers. This plant, which took over the various openings in the forests due to the native stewardship practices, goes by many names, but one that has survived into the modern era is hopness. The common name you might be familiar with is the American groundnut. Because of its widespread abundance, again because of the indigenous people of modern-day southeastern Massachusetts, groundnut is arguably the only reason European immigrants survived those first winters. Despite this being a foundational part of the landscape's history, there are no monuments to its significance. It's not the focal point of a national holiday, and it remains virtually unknown to most Americans. The American groundnut represents a common thread in indigenous crops in North America, and represents a pivotal point in the evolution of the diets of indigenous people. Like many crops, it had been selectively cultivated from warmer southern climates, and we can tell by the fact it cannot naturally breed in northern climates, such as, say, Massachusetts, where they were harvested by the pilgrims. We now know that there are varieties of persimmons bred for cooler climates, and warm weather crops like corn had only recently reached in northern parts of the modern United States at this time. History imagines these stories to be static, but the arrival of the pilgrims acted like a cleaver against the unfolding thread of time. Let's fast forward. Today we understand that groundnuts are not only flavorful, nitrogen-fixing, and perennial, they are incredibly healthy foods. Remember those clearings I had mentioned in the forests where indigenous people harvested the tubers? Planting nitrogen-fixing food crops on lands that had already been exhausted from annual crops seems like the best way to produce food while restoring the same site. While I've heard of no documentation supporting this theory, and it's completely fabricated by my own inclinations, it would make a lot of sense and it wouldn't be the first application of nitrogen fixers that produced crops that we've covered on this podcast. Despite this plant offering so many resources, it wasn't until the 1980s when Louisiana State University developed a groundnut breeding program aimed at improving tuber size with the long-term goal of bringing a new crop to market. The program didn't last long despite its very early on successes. Today, the remnants of these efforts exist in remote quarters of edible plant nurseries, where the LSU varieties are quickly sold to an increasingly interested public. The LSU story is a tragic one. Dr. Bill Blackman oversaw the groundnut research project and moved away from Louisiana with the expectation the project would continue on without him. Unfortunately, that was not the case. Through an extraordinary set of circumstances, I was able to speak with Dr. Blackman to discuss the research and a bit of what he's up to today. Despite the fact that it's been nearly 40 years since his tenure at LSU, and the fact he's nearing his 90s, he's still growing groundnuts and remains optimistic about the future of the crop. It was an absolute honor to have the opportunity to speak with him, and I genuinely hope he understands the reverberations his work has had on a new generation of farmers and myself. And with that, let's go to the interview. I hope you guys enjoy this one. It's one of the most special conversations I've been lucky enough to have on this entire podcast. Moment of truth. 
I, I know you were working on it for a while. Could you tell me a little bit about why you chose the, the groundnut when you guys started researching it? I had a uh, research associate just love wild plants. And we got that, and we just basically gave it a try and thought that it had a lot of possibilities. You know, there's still there's a good bit of it being sold now. I've sent out a lot of samples to different people. And then there's some seed companies that are selling it. But uh, we got interested in it because it looked like it had good nutritional value and it was a fun thing to work with. And then down in LSU, it grows everywhere. I mean, down in Louisiana, it grows all over the place. And so we gave it a shot. And uh, our first results encouraged us. So we proceeded on from there. When uh, I left LSU, I thought they were going to let Bert continue, Bert, with his name, continue work with, with the plant, but they kind of moved him to doing something else. And I brought plants with me and worked with them some up here, but I'm not, it was not, I'm not in a good position to, you know, really carry on the work, but I, I can't do a lot of replication. But we made a lot of progress. Like I said, there's several seed companies at one time that were selling them, and they have people that are growing them, and they're also working on them in Korea. I sent them some samples. Awesome. It sounds like you thought there was a lot of hope for it to be a viable crop for folks that... Uh, yes, I do. I think if I had not left LSU, it might be a crop now. Oh, wow. And people are growing it in the garden and stuff. thing is, is it's... Uh, it has a high, nutri high nutritional value and a pretty good taste to it, but it's a viney plant, and it's a little difficult to grow on a large scale. We were working on that and hoping to get some plants that weren't quite so viney. Yeah. But uh, I was uh, sorry that they didn't continue it and that nobody is really, right now, as far as I know, trying to improve it. Now, Stephen Cannon up at uh, in the Anna, I think. But he did some work with it, but he didn't. He was not in a good position. One of the problems we had, I'm jumping about a little bit, one of the problems with the plants that Bert and I developed is they were from Louisiana, and it's photoperiodically sensitive, so it's hard to do breeding work with those if you get further north. Yeah, that's that's something you know. I live in New England, and um, they they exist around here, but yeah, they they don't breed naturally in this area. So you brought up the the vininess, which is interesting because I've thought about as I've grown it. You know, how would you do this on any meaningful scale? So if you had been able to work on it for a longer time, was that you were looking to have it put more energy into the to the roots and in the tubers, and was the goal to figure out a way to manage it or to actually try to, to select for uh, less vininess? Well, we were, when we were working with it. We were, when you do a breeding, you take what you get and you see if you can adapt that. Uh, a good crop for somebody that's in a garden, and I don't know how hard it would be to uh, mechanically, you know, to grow big crops of it. Now, we also did some herbicide work with it where... We were trying to develop, of course, this was for the breeding more than anything else, trying to develop a system where the weeds were not a problem. But 
biggest thing that happened was that when I left, I thought they were going to let Burke continue it, and it didn't work out that way. I know you said that you've continued to grow it, not necessarily at the scale or the extensiveness that you were able to when you were researching it with the LSU program. Now, is there anything you've learned from the time that you've kind of been toying with it, seeing it evolve in a different climate that um, makes you think differently about how to continue working with this plant? No, but, you know, I was always able to get good yields. I had plants that would give me six pounds of plant sometimes. Oh, wow. Which was pretty pretty significant. And uh, I was, uh, I really didn't do as much research as I would have liked to have here along the lines that you're talking about, how's the best way to, you know, grow it and make it easy to grow. I was, uh, what I was wanting to do is just to keep the stuff going. And uh, I think it went to the small gardeners, but I think anybody that wanted to scale up with it was kind of disappointing because it's kind of hard to grow. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a beautiful plant. And um, one of the things that I think about personally with the plant is indigenous people had utilized it for a number of years and they did have clearings in the woods where they would grow them. You know, you think about it as a monocrop. I'm going to use the term monocrop pretty loosely here. And it's an interesting crop that I think has a lot of opportunity. And as someone that's been around it for so long, I'm, I'm really interested to know what should people be doing if they're interested in continuing to try to bring it to being a crop that could be a meaningful part of people's diets in terms of where you think research should continue with it? Well, you got several directions you can go in, and that's not an easy question. Just say, do this or do that. Because you say, you got one thing you want to do is develop products. I was encouraging working with people to develop products because if you get something that's really highly desirable, then it's worth a whole lot more effort. The other thing is, is to get plants that produce very well in the area you were in. And I think they do pretty well for the small garden if you just want to grow them for yourself in a certain area. Now, the other thing you can do is you can mulch them, and that really takes the weeds down. And uh, you can, uh, you know, just you're, you're asking, you know, what we would like to have. The trouble is we like, we tend to focus so much on so much on the Irish potato. I think, well, we ought to have something like that. Uh, the vine uh, kind of changes that option. But the other thing we were doing, looking forward to, is it had, one time somebody thought they had identified some anticancerol compounds in it. We were working on that. So what I was in the position to do was, to, if anybody finds a niche they want to explore, I was trying to provide them with germplasm. Growing it commercially, I don't know, you know, big big bunches of it. I don't know how hard that would be. I don't know whether anybody's improved on that or not. As somebody that grows ground nuts, I've been thinking about like what, you know, how does that over a longer term, like what is, what should folks like myself that are working and researching it, what we should be doing? And I think, you know, it's not, it's never easy. And we do tend to fall into these traps of, well, it's very similar to like a, an Irish potato. And do we, do we try to grow it to be just like that? And I think that might not be the the ideal solution. When you were doing the research at LSU, did they give you any feedback or guidance, or was it more of a... No, we were the ones that were doing all that. We started it. We were just allowed... That was our research, part of our research program. 
we had it uh, in tissue culture. We could regenerate it from there, and you then had some people working on products with it. Some people trying to make flowers. Some people trying to, you know, how you're going to cook it. Had a lot of help with different people getting involved with it. The university kind of developed the program, and within the guidelines, they let you go with it. And uh, I, uh, not planning on leaving LSU, my wife got another job up here, and I have another project that I work on, and I thought they were going to continue with the program, and so I left and came up to uh, the mechanics field, and I brought the material with me in case I wanted to hold it, and I had it perpetuating it for about 20 years, and I made some selections up here, too. And I've gone out, and as it grows around a lot of places up here. I've gone out and gotten wild feed, and there was one guy over near Charlottesville that was working on it for a while. He found some around the, uh, I think it was uh, Thomas Jefferson's house, but that had nothing to do with Jefferson growing, and I think it just happened to be that some plants had gotten started there, and he got interested in And I thought he was going to work on it, but I hadn't heard from him in a while. And there's a seed grower down in, I think it's in North Carolina, uh, that distributes it, not seed growers. It's been distributed, and somebody's growing it for him. There's several people out there, and I hadn't thought about it in a while. That's the reason I can't give you all these names right now. Sure, sure. You know, you've been working with this plant for, what, 50 years now, give or take? Do you think there's anything that people, you know, it's become kind of a hot topic the last, in my experience, the last decade or so, around like the perennial crops, permaculture, those circles. Is there anything you think people might not know about it that just because you've been around it for so long, you think is important to know? Well, I think what you need to do, there's some people out there that just kind of are interested in this stuff. And uh, I, at one time, had tried to start what I call the APIOS Tribune, and I was going to use that as an exchange. And I really uh, only did about one issue of that. But the idea of that was to get different people writing and, you know, giving their thoughts and the history of it and all that. And anytime something came up, it was supposed to be there. I mean, the thing is, is we've got to learn how to produce it in an efficient manner We've got to find a use for it that people are really craving. And uh, I think there are a lot of people out there, but the the biggest impediment to me is being able to produce it efficiently, you know, grow it efficiently. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Poor Pearls Almanac. This is Andy reminding you that if you're looking for more content outside of the scope of the podcast or sources, recommended readings, or ways to support us, you can find that at poorpearls.com. Further, we've expanded our delivery into video content on our YouTube channel, where we're able to show step-by-step how to do many of the processes that we talk about within the podcast. We have also started a Twitch channel, where we platform various folks on skills from DIY mushroom production to the various methods to keep land out of the hands of developers. Again, all this can be found at poorproles.com, and we look forward to seeing you over there. You'd mentioned that you're growing some and uh, you've seen it kind of evolve a little bit since you've been in Virginia. Could you talk a little bit about that, if, what you've seen or, um, you know, how that might impact what people up north might be thinking about doing with the plant? 
Well, there's two things you can do. Growing the plants from the south and the north is no problem. Breeding them up there is a problem because they don't get to a uh, place where the seed are produced. They, the, uh, they're late, they're earlier, they're like the plants around here that I brought and the ones that were, I sometimes had to be very careful. I didn't put a cover over them to get seed set from them because they were my good plants. Whereas I can go out in the wild here and collect seed. So uh, what we were trying to do early in the game was what you're actually expressing the desires. Okay, how do you get, really get people interested in it? What's the most important thing? And so we were trying to get a productive plant that uh, people would want to grow. And we made we made a tremendous amount of progress when you consider what the wild ones look like. We couldn't find any evidence, actually, that the Indians, they used to plant them at the campsite, but no evidence that they uh, really cultivated them that much. Now, they were introduced into Ireland during the potato famine. That didn't really... When, when the, disease-resistant potatoes came back, they stopped growing. I don't know how far along that got. If you take the potato out, then people would be more interested in it. And on a a larger scale aside of ground nuts, when you're thinking about like crops that I think, especially things like ground nuts, sunchokes, kind of those perennial crops that indigenous folks were harvesting in some capacity, are there any traits that you think, just from your experiments, that people should be paying attention to the most when evaluating a plant's potential for being basically a new crop? I don't feel like at this time I'm in a good position to uh, to give you a reading on that. I used to be into all of that and keep up with it. And we had a variety of crops. I can't remember just which ones we had, but we thought this one had the most potential at the time, so we focused, again, just focus on it. If you're kind of somebody that's got a farm that's growing a lot of these different things, first of all, you want to be able to, you know, make a profit on it if you're trying to do that for a living. But the other thing is, is uh, what are people interested in now? I'm not in the loop too much on that. I'm kind of gone in another direction. My uh, one of my side projects was challenging things in mainstream science that I don't think could be true, but everybody accepts. And, oh, that's awesome. And uh, that, that's what I've been spending where my efforts are now. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Like maybe one of your specific projects you've been working on? You know, they argue about what the nature of time is. It's hard to tell. Well, let me, uh, let's just go back. I'll just say the... Uh, Special relativity, I'll just drag that out. Okay. It says that the speed of light is a constant to all observers. And that means if somebody is sitting on the other side of the pasture and you're sitting here, you measure the speed of light, it will be a constant. It will be a certain value. But if you run towards him and he runs towards you, the light constant will stay the same. And I don't see how that could be. But there's evidence. Our measurements sometimes, you see, they used to think light. Well, let's go back way back when. They used to think that the Earth was the center of the universe. I mean, that went on for a while. And the Catholics 
that was part of their religion almost, because that's what the Bible says. Then they found, made some measurements, and some of the first people that were doing that, they kind of restricted them. They they were uh, not allowed to talk too much, but then now it's accepted. The sun is the center of our solar system. And, uh, but it was because somebody came up with some measurements that were sensitive. You go through a phase where you analyze them and say, is it right or is it not right? Then you got to think of an experiment that you can test that. Experiment I'm proposing, I don't know whether it will work or not, is Jupiter has a moon Io that keeps going around, and when the light signals come from that, on one side it's going towards you, on the other side it's going away from you. And I think if we can take make the signals, we can take our measurements carefully enough that we can evaluate it. Okay, let's test it. So now what would be the implications of that in terms of how that would impact the rest of science? Like well, what? It, then we then we got to change our foundation for science. That's always been happening. I mean, uh, you go back and you start understanding things better. I mean, you can do things a lot of times. I mean, a lot of, a lot of scientists say, I don't care whether the theory is right or not. If it works, I'm, on, I'm happy with it. And they're... Some people that want to less. What is reality? You know, why is there something rather than nothing? What is the basic unit of the something that we have? To me, uh, more I look at it, more I think there's got to be a God in that mix. But I'm we're focusing on the science part of it. Bill, you're you're a man of many different interests. I, I will say that. <laughs> Talking to you now, and I've been interested in that since I was in graduate school. When I was uh, doing enzyme kinetics, I was talking about energy, and then I got to know what is energy, and then first one thing and then another. And I've done a lot of stuff. I don't. The interesting thing about being with the university and then moving is then you become an outsider. And a lot of times the. People that are in the main clique, they don't they don't want to talk to you too much. So it's a fun thing to do. And this is a story from uh, when I was about five years old. My uncles, beloved uncles, told me that my grandfather had caught two snakes eating each other and closed them in a box. When he opened the box, the next day they were gone. They'd eaten each other up. Well, now, I couldn't see how that could be so. But it had to be true because my uncles told me it was true. <laughs> and I, as a kid, I spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. And <laughs> science is a lot like that now. Yeah, that's... I mean, sometimes you <laughs> come up with things that they say, this is true, and you don't see how they could, how it could be. Yeah, this, it's funny how some stories just stick with you like that. Something that, you know... He probably set off the cuff and, uh, you know, it stays with you forever. I, I got to ask, looking back for folks, are there any final thoughts you would like for uh, to say regarding the, the groundnut crop for folks that are into it today and are hopeful for its future? The one thing I'm not into is, is, is I can't evaluate how many we, I was the first but we were going to... Uh, try to get interested in it with the small gardeners because I figured they could handle it. 
I don't know, you know, if anybody's manipulating that and how that's going on. I think if you're going to sell it, you need to develop a technique for them to produce it and get them interested in it. And uh, if enough people get interested in it, then it will become a crop. And like I said, I don't know how widely it's being uh, grown now. I know that I have sent out thousands of tubers. Apparently, the seed companies were dispensing them. And now I think they got some growers that are growing the line. But that doesn't increase, you know, improve like the tomatoes, you know, they're always growing new tomatoes. The, the research is not being done on the breeding in. Yeah. And wh- where do you say you're located? Uh, I'm in Massachusetts. Okay. That's, you can grow them up there, but that's difficult to do any breeding work. Yeah, yeah. I'm stuck with what I get. Bill, before I let you go, first off, thank you so much. I know you weren't expecting this. Uh, it was a total shot in the dark to see if I could get you on the phone. So thank you so much for taking some time to chat with me. I don't think you uh, know how many people are going to be interested in hearing your thoughts on groundnuts because, uh, you know, they, like I said, they've made a huge swell of interest in the last five to 10 years. Everyone asks who's got LSU groundnuts. So to hear from the man who is involved with it himself, they're, they're going to appreciate it. How many of the lines do you have? Uh, I've probably got, I've got some LSU and then I've got some random ones. I don't even know what they're called that I've gotten here and there. But the LSU are definitely the best ones I've got. There'll be a lot of people eager to hear what you have to say about it. So I definitely appreciate you. I appreciate your time. Well, I'm glad you're interested in it. And I, that's what I wanted was some people to get interested in it. And so I had a, a reason I had brought the stuff with me. And I'm kind of being phased out now because I'm just getting, I got too many things going on. Before I let you go, I just want to ask, was there anything that you would want to bring up about groundnuts that you think is important that I didn't ask about that maybe people don't know? I can't think of anything. I just think that you're the kind of person that I want to get into, get interested in it. You were the kind of person I was growing the tubers for, so she started. I mean, I've sent them all over the place. Awesome. I, I, I appreciate it. I have grown in in the last couple of years, and I don't know whether the ones I have on hand are that viable now or not. Only one way to find out, bothers right? me that I don't have a big field going. I mean, a big garden park going. Awesome, Bill. This has been fantastic. Again, I, I can't express how much I appreciate you taking some time to chat. Well, I'm, I'm pleased that you're interested in it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Bye.